Welcome to Unfuck Your Brain, the only podcast that teaches you how to use psychology, feminism, and coaching to rewire your brain and get what you want in life. And now here's your host, Harvard Law School grad, feminist rock star, and master coach, Kara Lowenthal. My chickens, I am so excited for this conversation today. Some of you may already know our fantastic author and guest. And if you don't, then you're going to know her after this and you're going to want to buy all her books. So Andrea Owen is an author, global speaker, and professional certified life coach. I personally am an unprofessional certified life coach. Sometimes I I am as well. I like that. (laughs) Who helps high achieving women maximize unshakable confidence and master resilience. So you can obviously see why I want to have her on the podcast. We have a lot in common. She's taught hundreds of thousands of women, tools, and strategies to be able to empower themselves to live their most kick-ass life through speaking, her books, coaching, and her wildly popular podcast with over 3 million downloads. And actually, oddly, your podcast title is not in here. Tell everybody the name of your podcast. Make some noise. Make some noise. That's all the name of her book, her latest book, Make Some Noise, Speak Your Mind, and Own Your Strength, which is coming out. So I'm so excited. Andrea, thank you for being here. So excited to be here. You were one of the people like top on my list. I'm like, I have to reach out because I know that you'll love the topic of this book. Yeah. So let's just start with that. Tell us what made you decide to write the book and why now? Honestly, because I was fucking pissed. That was the genesis of it. You know, 2015, 2016 was an interesting year, I think, for many women. It wasn't too much of a whiplash moment for me. I was sort of already on the journey, uncovering a lot of my own stuff. But 2016 happened in the election. And then 2017, honestly, with the Kavanaugh hearings and the Me Too movement, actually Kavanaugh was 2018, but Me Too in 2017, I just was re-traumatized like many women and had a hard time and had to dig up some stuff and do the work. And I came to the realization that I cannot talk about women's empowerment anymore without talking about the root of the problem. And that is patriarchy. Mm -hmm. Like if you're talking about women's empowerment, you're talking about feminism, which is talking about patriarchy. Mm -hmm. So that was sort of the, just the jumping off point. And then I had to calm down and actually, you know, make (laughs) it readable. (laughs) You're like, I like this screed that I just wrote of me screaming at all caps. Just just one long rant. But (laughs) it's not. Yeah. I mean, I think a lot of that was such a kind of like awakening is the wrong word, but it's sort of like, I don't know, like the fire's already going, but then you like add some coal to the fire kind of thing. You add some logs, I think, for a lot of women. Obviously, I don't know a lot about fire since I don't know what you call that. (laughs) So tell us a little, you know, and I've been on your podcast, you're familiar. Like I really like concrete kind of actionable things people can use. I'm really big about that. So you have at the end of every chapter, you walk your readers through something you call the unlearning, which Mm -hmm. I just also love because it kind of sounds like a mystical quest a little bit. Like it it sounds like, or like a little bit of a, like a cult initiation. Like I'm just, I'm into this title, this term, and there are four steps. So I'm hoping obviously everybody should get the book and read it for themselves, but just Mm -hmm. as a little preview, can you tell us what those four steps are and kind of why you think they're so important such that they're in every chapter? Yes. It is like a secret, you know, little Justice League that we have, secret handshake and all that kind of thing. <laughs> There's special hands well, Andrew and I are wearing them. You just can't see them. Right. The reason I wanted it to be called the unlearning is because, as you well know, and all your listeners know, like we've been conditioned and socialized to be a certain way for decades. And it's not just about learning new tools, which are great and which we all should do, but it is about unlearning the conditioning that we've all been taught. Mm-hmm. So there's four steps. And the first one is, And this is really great for people who are just starting out on their 
personal development journey or, or seasoned people to kind of go back to brass tacks. The first one is to pay attention. You can't fix what you don't know is messy for lack of a better expression. So it's about paying attention to your thoughts, paying attention to your own internalized misogyny, paying attention to where you're not showing up out of fear and then looking at, is that your conditioning? Mm -hmm. And then the next step is to just get curious because many times we start noticing things and then we're like, holy shit, I'm fucked. <laughs> and so totally. it's like, this just came up in the, I've been doing this five day boot camp, and somebody submitted a question that was like, okay, I've been doing thought work for three days now and I hate everything even more. Is that right. normal? And I was like, yes, totally, totally. normal. That means you're doing it right. Yeah. That means and and I don't up. think that's everyone's experience. I think totally. it's a some people it's like how instant you feel. Relief, and then some people feel worse right away. Yeah. Exactly. And so I'm mostly talking to the people who feel worse right away. Mm-hmm. And it's like no charge on it. It's not positive or negative. You followed the rules. Basically, we, we were only given one beverage choice growing up. Like that right. Kool-Aid was patriarchy. So just get curious. Like, why do you think that you judge women who show a lot of cleavage? Why do you think that you aren't asking for the sale? Mm-hmm. Why do you think you hesitate to set boundaries? So just getting curious. And then the third step is self-compassion. Like you can't change by beating yourself up. Nobody gets to betterment that way. So lots of self-compassion. And then the last step is to keep the momentum. So a lot of times that's having conversations with people that we trust and probably, you know, in your membership community, bringing it up to your therapist if it feels right, bringing it up to your siblings or your parents. So, and I wanted to have that in every single chapter because I mean, who doesn't love a process mm-hmm. <laughs> and just something <laughs> All for people type to, be able to remember good at school. We're like, what are the steps? Tell me exactly how to completely color deprogram code my brain. And I mm-hmm. will. Yeah. They should totally be color coded for sure. <laughs> yep. Yeah. I love that. I mean, I think all of those elements are so important, right? It's like awareness, self-compassion. And I think it's such a like misunderstanding, I think, of personal development. I think there's this critique, and maybe you hear this too, I think, because I come from the social justice world, like, especially my social media feed is like half like radical leftists, (laughs) like half life coaches. It's like very confusing. And it's like socialists and then great intense capital. It's like the whole gamut. But I feel like one of the critiques I feel like is so misplaced of the self-development, self-help industry, whatever you want to call us, kind of, I think Mm -hmm. we're practical philosophers personally, is that it's sort of like self-indulgent and myopic and it's like just about individual responsibility. It doesn't like bubble, you know, and I am just always like, who do you think is creating social change? It's people and their brains. So (laughs) if we haven't deprogrammed, I call it deprogramming the patriarchy, you call it the unlearning, whatever you call Mm -hmm. it, like we're the ones coming up with the ideas for the social change. We're the ones trying to like convince other people to change their minds. Like, who do you think is doing the social justice? It's us. The more that we can unlearn this stuff, free our own minds. And then I love that your step four is like share with other people. Mm -hmm. That's what this work is about, right? It's just like so wild to me when people are like, think that these are somehow different things. Like as those structural changes just happening without individual human brains being involved. I agree with you. And I think it's both. Like, I think that personal development, like that's why they call it personal development. I mean, I'm not going to lie. I am self-absorbed. Like, (laughs) (laughs) Like, why do women have to justify that? Right. Like men aren't running around justifying, caring about their own emotional and mental experience. Yeah. I have to be self-absorbed. Like I care about exactly what you said. Like I care about my emotional intelligence. I go to therapy so that I can be a better human. Like I'm constantly thinking about it. And we also think about the collective. Right. 
Yeah. And I just, yeah, it's so like any revolutionary is somebody who mentally freed themselves from what they were told was possible. So exactly. Where do we think this is coming from? Yeah. So you also talk about this thing that I think a lot of women have very complicated feelings about, which you call shining too bright Mm -hmm. kind of, you know, I hear like so often from women, which I think there's probably, it's like a Venn diagram. Like this isn't always what they mean, but sometimes it is like a lot of sort of like a fear of being too much. You know, it's like that famous quote, right? Which is like, who are we to be so, what right. is it? It's our biggest fear. Yeah, Mary our biggest fear is not that, right. Mm-hmm. We are great, right. So yeah. I'm curious if you talk a little bit about that. Like, what do you sort of mean with, by shining too bright? And why do you think that's such an important thing for women to kind of grapple with? There was a very specific reason that I put the word two in there. Mm-hmm. And what I found with clients over the years is that there's two fears. And this isn't totally universal. I'm speaking generally here. Yeah. There are exceptions, but there's the just the basic fear of visibility. And, you know, just putting yourself out there. We see what happens on social media. You know, you and I are both friends with Susan Hyatt and just like the comments in her ads, both from men and from women, it's happening all, all around us. So we fear just shining in general. And there's a lot of fear around outshining others. Mm-hmm. So, you know, Gay Hendricks talks about this in The Big Leap. And his quote is, people think to themselves, if I grow to my fullest potential, if I have all the success and get all the degrees or whatever it is that we want to do and, and meet all of our goals, I will outshine fill in the blank and make them feel or look bad. This could be a parent, you know, many times a sibling. I know when I started to out earn my husband, mm. that was a thing, mostly for me. He didn't right. care about it. Right. He was like, this is I did. great. I'm going to I had to unravel stuff. <laughs> right. Or, you know, a sibling, a parent, a spouse, it really could be anyone and not necessarily people who come from families where they talk shit about people that go to grad school, people right. that, you know, kind of outgrow the family. Sometimes we make up these stories all on our own, even when we have supportive people in our communities and families. So that's a very real thing. Many times unconscious for women. Mm-hmm. And so that's part of what I'm talking about in that chapter is we need to look at my friend, Elizabeth D'Alto early on when I was writing this book, she has this great quote and she says, what is my conditioning versus what is my truth? And that is a question I weave throughout the book for us to think about, because many times when we're afraid to show up, to start a podcast, to do whatever, even if you just pause to think about what about this is my conditioning and really look at your truth. I mean, that in and of itself can be life-changing. Yeah. I love that. This is something I struggle with actually in a, like in my life, it has been not like a specific person in any way, but Mm -hmm. this sort of, and I think probably women and people from social justice backgrounds have this more maybe, but I still sort of am thinking through it. So I don't have like a pithy way of talking about it, but on the one hand, especially with self-help, I feel like there's very democratizing impulse of like, this work is for anyone. Like everyone can expand their possibilities. Like there's sort of nothing particularly special about me other than that I have done this work. And like, if you do it, you also can Mm -hmm. have this amazing life, which I totally believe. Yeah. And like, that was a really useful thought for me. Right. But then there became this sort of thought plateau where I got coached maybe a year ago. Is it even that long? Maybe like six or eight months ago by my teacher and mentor, Brooke Castillo of the Life Coach School. And she she just loves to find something that like you would rather die than call yourself and tell yourself that that's like your new identity you have to practice. And so mine was being brilliant. Like I was like happy to say I was smart. I was happy to say I had like done hard work, 
But like the idea of saying that I was brilliant made me want to throw up in my mouth. Like it was so uncomfortable, even though other people call me that all the time yeah. and I just like dismiss it. Right. Or I just like, I just don't even think about it sort of. So I like noticed that even there and I was like, what is this about? And it was this like, it's like the shining too bright. But in my mind, it was like, if I lean into that, somehow that's implying other people are not brilliant. And that's what I sort of ended up figuring out was that in my mm. mind, I was thinking that brilliant is inherently comparative in some way, right? Because that's how it was okay. used when I was growing up. That's how I understood it kind of at home was that like intelligence was like comparative. It's like you're smarter than someone else. So it was like a zero sum game. Yeah. It's like, well, mm -hmm. if I'm brilliant, that's me saying I'm like better than other people or smarter than other people as opposed to like really has nothing to do with anybody else. It's just, yeah. and of course like that, I hate it because she's always right when she does this, but that was like exactly right. We just talked about, I'm working on a book proposal. Like if I'm going to lean into being a thought leader, which I think I am. And truly like, that was where a practical philosopher came from. I was like, she was like, what do you think you are? Are you a coach? Are you a teacher? Are you whatever? And I was like, I think I'm like a philosopher, actually. I'm like a practical philosopher. I think that's actually what I do. Coaching is a way that I serve and communicate that stuff, mm -hmm. but like that's really what I'm doing. I had to lean into it. But so I think this is so important. And it's like something that I want for all my listeners. Like, even if you feel like you're self confident and you're happy to go after achievements and whatever, it doesn't mean that you fully dealt with this thing because. If you'd asked me before that conversation, I would not have said that I had any fear about like being in the spotlight or shiny, right? Like I had this podcast, I have a public profile, I talk about how much money I've made and what the business is doing. And I talk about my accomplishments. I'm a fucking confidence coach, but we hit a ceiling and I was like, whoa, Nellie, no, we can't say I'm brilliant. That's not, no, 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 that's not okay. That's so interesting. And it's like you said, it's these things that you probably like face value, you wouldn't think. And mine was the talent. Like, so my brilliant is talent. Like all I want to do is be the talent. But when I actually think about it, I feel small suddenly, like, because I was the first out of my circle of close colleagues back in 2011 to get a book deal. Mm -hmm. And people were so excited for me and it was exciting. It was, it was mm -hmm. really awesome to get a traditional book deal. And I felt like, oh, better, you know, slow down better slow down. Mm -hmm. You don't want to mm -hmm. outrun anyone. You don't want to leave anyone yeah. behind. That's a lot of times the fear that people have, that women have, is the fear of leaving people behind. Like we feel it is our duty, you know, to make everyone comfortable, to be accommodating. Yeah. And if we out succeed, then that's unsafe, yeah. obviously like in our subconscious. Totally. I feel like there's some evolution in biology. Like there's the socialization that probably some part of us is like, we're a pack animal and you don't want to be like too far away from the pack. You're going to get picked off. Yeah. I mean, and that points to also tribal shame. And I don't know if that's like an actual psychological term, but it's talked about in our circles, mm -hmm. how families and organizations who say things like, oh, you think you're a big shot now moving to New York City, yeah. things like that. Like we don't want to be more or less excommunicated from our right. family because our lizard brain tells us that we will die. Totally. It's a very real yeah, thing. That is a real thing. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Totally. So you also talk about the idea that women's empowerment begins with women asking for what they want. So this is something that I talk about a lot on the podcast, obviously. And so I'm just curious for my listeners kind of hear your take on it. And in particular, I'm curious if, I don't know if this has been your experience or your experience has been different than this. I get a lot of people telling me they don't know what they want. Right. But then when I dig into it, they almost always do know what they want. They've just told themselves they can't have it. They can't ask for it. Nobody should know, whatever. It's like they've covered it up. They're sort of like, well, I know what I want, but I can't have that. And if I can't have that, then I don't know what I want. Right. Right. It's like they don't have the food the I want thing. and I don't like any of these other options. So I guess between all the options I don't like, I don't know what I want. But I'm curious how you think about this and how you teach about it. 
I feel similarly. And also, and this is kind of just another way of explaining it, I think, is that women tend to have judgments around other women or this persona, even this identity of somebody who does ask for everything they want. Mm -hmm. And that's a lot of times where I want to start. Like, Mm -hmm. what are your judgments? Where did they come from, et cetera? Mm -hmm. And also I agree with you. I have met so many women when you ask them the question, like, what do you want? It's like deer in headlights, no idea. So I start with asking them, what do you not want? Like, what do you Mm -hmm. want less of in your life? And typically Mm -hmm. they have a laundry list of shit they don't want to do anymore. (laughs) People they don't want to have to interact with, all of that. And that will sort of open the door to looking Mm -hmm. at what you want. Yeah, that's such an interesting technique. I always remember coaching this clutch member who was like 19 or 20. I don't know. She was like, she had no idea what to do with her life. She was like very meek in the coach, you know, but like eventually after enough questions, it turned out she had this incredibly specific desire, which was to like be a marine biologist who worked on sea turtles or something. But she had all these reasons she couldn't do that. But it was just such a like, our brains just are such liars to us. It's like, I don't know at all what I want to do. Oh, actually, I know this very specific job that like five people in the world have that I know that I want, but like... I can't let oh, myself see you? that, right? Yeah. Yeah. One of the things you brought up a couple of times I think is interesting. So I'm curious to hear a little bit more about this is this idea that it seems like you find that women are often judging other women who mm-hmm. are doing whatever, showing cleavage or asking for what they want. Or is that something that you feel like comes up a lot in your work? Not as much in my work, but just like the gen pop. I just like to say gen that term. <laughs> We're familiar with institutional slang. You're familiar with the muggles. And I think it comes up a little bit in the women that I work with. And, you know, it's so interesting. I don't know if you had the same experience or any of your listeners had the same experience. When I started really digging into internalized misogyny and internalized Mm -hmm. sexism, it was a rough road. It was a rough road to really take accountability and responsibility. And also for me, I access anger very easily. I got really angry just Mm -hmm. at the patriarchy for essentially being the root of the problem in this. And for people who might be unfamiliar, it's our own internalized patriarchy. And -hmm. this manifests as slut shaming. It manifests as chronic dieting. Mm -hmm. It also manifests in, you know, I'm a competitive person by nature. And I think that there's healthy competitiveness, but when it crosses the line into quote unquote backstabbing or being so competitive in a family unit or a workplace, especially mm-hmm. when it is for the proximity or attention of men who have more power than us. That's mm-hmm. how internalized misogyny manifests. And I encourage people to look more into it. There's some really fantastic feminist writers who have written and are much more experts at it than I am. And we always hear people saying like, we need to lift each other up and women supporting women. And why are we so mean to each other? And, and I'm like, patriarchy, like <laughs> it's not our fault. Yeah. One of the things I started doing is just gently calling it out when I see it. I was playing tennis last summer with some friends of mine and we were just chatting afterwards and somebody just casually made the comment like, oh, well, you know how catty women can be. Mm-hmm. And I was like, actually, <laughs> right, I pulled like, it actually. Sometimes it's a stereotype, you know, a like stereotype. I've never really had, not that I don't think it happens. And I coach people who have a lot of like, you know, drama in their friendships for sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But all my friendships with women have been always like supportive and loving and amazing. So it's sort of that, like, there is something under the stereotype, like it does happen and mm-hmm. we have to help women see how that's internalized patriarchy, but then also not just accept the stereotypes that the patriarchy tells us kind of what women are like. Yeah. My argument is is that it's not inherent. And that's what we hear sometimes that women are inherently backstabbing and catty and gossipy. And 
I have had some really hard friendships and I've been a terrible friend and it was all my internalized stuff. Mm-hmm. And I've had to, you know, luckily I've had the opportunity to circle back with some women in my life and make amends where I could and learn how to be a really good friend and also distance mm-hmm. myself from people who still gossip because I know they're gossiping about me if they're gossiping <laughs> about other women. Yeah. That's interesting. So I'm going to take a a little bit of a turn, although of course it's all related because you also write about something that I talk about a lot on the podcast, which you call checking out and I call like numbing out or buffering, Mm -hmm. but kind of the same thing, right? All the ways that we are like, I'd like to not be conscious of my human experience right now, please. Like what can I imbibe or do that will take me away from knowing that I'm a human that exists? So I know you have nearly 10 years of sobriety and recovery. Mm -hmm. So I just love to hear kind of both why that's such an important topic to you, but also how you think it kind of ties in. Cause I think it's totally connected to all of these right, things that we've been talking about. Oh my gosh. How much time you got this, <laughs> this topic. Well, it's just so like also near and dear to yeah. my heart. And I, I recognize that not everyone identifies as an addict like I do, but everybody is numbing out or checking out and stuff. Totally. Kind of we all do. I still do. Like, of course. Yeah. <laughs> we all do. It's self-care to a certain extent, but <laughs> One of the questions that, and I don't know how you teach it. You might use a similar question. One of the questions that I like to ask myself or my clients when I find myself chronically doing it is what do you think that that's going to bring you? Like, so, you know, right now we were talking about TikTok before, like I will spend a solid two hours at the end of the day. Like when I could be reading something fiction or nonfiction, that's so much better for me. So I'm like, what is it that I'm trying to avoid? Like, what do I think that this is going to bring me? Mm -hmm. And it's fairly simple sometimes, but sometimes it's bigger things. And when I say simple, it's just, I just don't want to deal with my life at the moment. Things are stressful or it's just the way I decompress. But sometimes it's bigger things. Like I have to have a hard conversation with someone that I really don't want to have. And I'm avoiding it because it's Mm going to give me diarrhea when I have to do it. Like it's just, (laughs) sometimes there are hard things. And I only ask people, the bottom line is just shine the light on it because we hear you know, take the edge off all the time. And a lot of times I think that that edge is something that we need to look at that is for the greater good of our lives, our life and other people's lives as well. I think it's so normalized for women in particular in certain culturally specific ways, right? It's sort of like mommy wine culture. Mommy wine. Yeah. Or, but even not mommy, it's like just wine culture, like a bottle of wine at night, which is so interesting. During the day, even. Yeah. I mean, I guess men have similar stereotypes. It doesn't feel like the stereotype is as common for men. Like, even though obviously men can abuse alcohol also. Yeah. What were you I think where it's different is that because for men, it's more normalized and accepted as like fun and like something they deserve. But for women, it is normalized and accepted. And the cost is bigger to us. Mm-hmm. The cost is, especially in the motherhood circles, like, Good mothers aren't drunks, but yet- I feel like for women, it's stress related. Like the way the stereotype is for men, drinking is fun. Mm-hmm. Like you hang out with your bros and you watch, you're not going to watch the game without a 700 pack of Budweiser or like right. whatever's going on. But I think for women, it's always like decompressing, de-stressing. And it's sort of like, yes, we know patriarchy is very stressful for you. Yeah. Here's some booze so you can check out. Like- it's almost like there's this assumption or understanding that women are more stressed out than men, that stress is somehow like a thing that women need escape from, even apart from the mommy wine, which is like a very yeah. weird specific subgroup of it. It's complicated and it runs so deep. Like, don't get me started on like alcohol companies and how patriarchal they mm-hmm. are and how much money they're making off of women. And problematic drinking with women has gone up. DUIs yeah. with women have gone up. Rehab with women have gone up in the last decade and it has not with men. 
Mm. It's just, it makes me so angry. <laughs> <laughs> it makes me As so mad. Should. As it oh. should. Yeah. So I think, I mean, to kind of pull it together, right? I think part of the reason that women end up using or abusing or whatever, numbing out, checking out all of these behaviors, which I think are on a spectrum, right? Mm-hmm. We're all doing that. Sure. A lot of it is normal. Like I don't teach never buffer, right? But like there's a spectrum, obviously is because of not having the tools to recognize what's happening to them, like recognize the ways that they're living under kind of patriarchal stress, recognize all that internalized socialization that is coming out as just like constant people pleasing and gratifying other people and putting themselves last and ignoring themselves and criticizing themselves. And like, of course you're fucking exhausted by the end of the day. And all you want to do is zone out on Netflix. Sure. Yeah. And for me, you know, it was all of that and layered in was trauma that I had Mm. not looked at or properly processed, let alone healed Mm. from. And I think I didn't know how much it ran deep because of the stigma, just the mental health stigma. Mm. When I say this, I mean, this was, you know, a solid 12, 15 years ago. I was going to say, I feel like these days, like trauma is like the buzzword that it is. It's like, this pendulum has swung. I very far, a little far, (laughs) a little too far. Yeah. agreed. (laughs) I agree. But 10 years ago it it wasn't. And it was still a little bit of a stigma to talk about that. And I was burying it with booze. And before that I was burying it with relationships and sex and men. Right. Yeah. So many fun ways to bury our trauma. It <laughs> Except it's not really fun. It mastered the problem. Yeah. <laughs> it works until it doesn't. That's yeah. the saying in the, in the rooms of recovery, it works until it doesn't. Yeah, totally. So I would love to close with something that you and I both talk a lot about, which kind of lines up with this, which is like, okay, you know, sometimes we call those in my world, like false pleasures, kind of like they help you numb out. It stimulates dopamine. You get a psychological reward, but like you don't feel good afterwards. Really, mm-hmm. like you know, nobody feels good the morning after they have unhappy sex with a stranger. You can totally have happy sex with a stranger. I would never slut shame. I've had some great one night stands, but like we've all also had the version, whether it's sex or booze or Netflix or whatever, where like you just feel terrible afterwards because you yeah. just shoved down your emotion and like burned your brain out, and you don't, you know, you haven't solved anything. So we've talked about how the idea that like one way you resolve that is you do the unlearning, right? You do the processing, you work through that stuff, but you also talk about the idea that adding pleasure is a way that women can, what you call make more noise in their lives. And I talk Mm -hmm. a lot about pleasure as like a birthright and a thing that women are entitled to and don't have to earn and don't have to deserve and right, that really you're the one keeping it from yourself usually. Yeah. I would love to hear kind of how you see pleasure fitting into this puzzle. You know, it's interesting. I'll be super transparent about it. I hadn't really thought about pleasure until I started writing that chapter. Mm. And I worked with a sex therapist just to unpack a lot of stuff. Mm -hmm. Like it was rough. We took inventory. I have a weird memory. I remember every single man I've ever slept with, first and last name. I don't know why. (laughs) I don't know why. But we took inventory and I had to go through each one. And then I realized like that maybe 20% of the men I had slept with made my pleasure a priority. Mm. And so that's where that chapter title came from. But it goes beyond sex and the orgasm gap Mm -hmm. and looking up all areas of pleasure. And the thing that I thought of a couple of points I want to make here. Mm -hmm. One is that for me, exercising and moving my body as someone with anxiety disorder and OCD, I have to work out. Like I don't enjoy it. Like, let's be honest. Mm -hmm. Like I don't love it. If I didn't have to, I wouldn't, Yeah. but my mental health depends on it, but that is not 
a hobby. That is not right. something I do for pleasure. That is hygiene. That is absolutely just like brushing my teeth so they don't fall out. I have to work out. So all that to say, I had to really dig deep and think like, what are the things that I really enjoy? And I had been moving so quickly through my life mm-hmm. that I didn't know. So I had mm-hmm. to slow down, which is hard for me. So I'm an eight on the Enneagram. I just run way up here, just mm-hmm. fast, fast, fast. And I'm going to sound super cliche and life coaching here, but it is like going out and move to rural North Carolina so we can have land. And I have a huge front yard going out there with no Mm -hmm. shoes on and just like Mm -hmm. taking like five or 10 minutes to stand in the grass, sleeping naked and like feeling my skin on the Mm -hmm. sheets, actually tasting my food, how delicious it actually is in my mouth. Like these seem like simple, just no brainers, but you know, I'm a middle-aged working girl. Like <laughs> I don't have time. So they all require embodiment, right? And I think the reason exactly. that women struggle with pleasure is that women are socialized to disconnect and become alienated from their bodies, right? We're taught mm-hmm. that our bodies are an object for us to manipulate and change in order to secure approval and from other people. Yeah. Our bodies are objects for other people to desire. And our job with our bodies is just to make them as desirable or useful to other people as possible. So we're totally alienated from our bodies. I mean, and I go through this with women when I coach them way before we get to pleasure, just their inability to know if they're having a feeling or what it feels right. like or what's happening in their body, right? They're just like, I always used to describe law schools like a bunch of brains in a jar. Like nobody had any bodies. Like it was just, it could have been all a mirage. And so I feel like pleasure is important for that also. Like it's your birthright, but it's also just like a chemical reaction in your body. Like, you know, it's not like a sign of virtue and it's not a reward and it's not, right. It's not any of that. It's just like literal embodiment. Yeah. I, I feel like I was doing a really good job because my boyfriend the other day said to me, like, I don't even know what to get you for a gift because you just already like you buy yourself flowers every week mm-hmm. and you like already have nice sheets. It's like, you've done all the things that are like pleasurable for yourself and you just do whatever you want. And so I don't need, it's like, you're not missing anything. Yeah. And I was like, I know you're complaining, but I take that to be like the sign of a job well done. Like Exactly. And like, that was yeah. something I had to work on. And that's exactly it. It's embodiment. You know, for me, sometimes it's ecstatic dance, which I used to mm. so roast and make fun of. <laughs> and like the worst part about being a coach that you can't, I was like, <laughs> I can't make fun of Tony Robbins anymore. I can't make fun of like, now I mean, man, I feel bad about that. I mean, we have to have a sense of humor about some things, but yeah, like I am like living it up solid gold dancer style in my office some days, you know, like I tell Alexa to like throw it on and, and I embarrass my children. They know like when they can hear me like bouncing around here, I teach that sometimes too, to like use dance to help emotions move through your body. It's such a like perfect example of something that like all little kids and know how to do, just move their body to music, but then women get totally perfectionistic about it. And then they want to look good doing it. Cause what really matters is. If a man is watching you dance, exactly, does it look like you're doing it well, right? So much to unpack. Yes. So in sum, everybody should go turn on some music, dance around, and for yourself. (laughs) I had a George Michael dance party recently, and I'm a Gen Xer. So George Michael to me is everything. And I'm like, (laughs) his music is so good. Sexiest voice. Love him. Turn on some George Michael. (laughs) Yeah. Even I don't put on George Michael. I might be slightly younger than you. I'm like that five-year generation between Gen X and millennials. Like the Oregon Trail (laughs) half generation, micro generation. So if you wanted to give people kind of one, other than buy the book, obviously, one piece of sort of parting advice based on this book and your work, what would it be? 
I must be feeling really nice today. And it is go easy (laughs) on yourself because Mm -hmm. this is such a journey. And they probably already know this, but I'm going to remind them that it is not a one and done. You don't go through like a six month program Mm -hmm. and you're fixed. I am still constantly uncovering things about myself and moving through layers and unlearning things like diet culture and internalized misogyny and anti-racism work, like all this stuff. Mm -hmm. It's big. These are heavy, complicated topics that have been living that are, Mm -hmm. you know, for lack of a better expression, embedded in our DNA. And it's going to take a minute and it might be really hard. So be exquisitely kind to yourself. Yeah. And you're also, okay, you're perfect the way you are already also, right? I mean, part of the internalization of patriarchy and white supremacy and all of those things, I think, is this idea that we, well, also just honestly, the internalization of Christianity yeah. is that we need to be like constantly perfecting ourselves to mm-hmm. achieve salvation, which is, I have gone on many rants about this on the podcast before, <laughs> but it is like a very Christian ideology. It's not just a truth about the world and not even all religions believe this. So I think that shows up in self-development work for women, I think a lot. That's sort of like, okay, I'm going to like get to the, I have to like do this. I'm not doing, am I deep patriarchy programming myself well enough? Like that's not the right question, (laughs) right? Like when you are judging and evaluating your own quote unquote progress in doing this work, that actually, that is the patriarchy, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So like- It's it's messy work. Yeah. If you learn nothing else, be kind to yourself will change your life. So a hundred percent. Yeah. Thank you for coming on. Where can they find the book? Everywhere, I assume. Well, um, after August 31st, wherever books are sold. And yes. And I have like a 63-page workbook that's free if people Amazing. want it. They can have it because I know get that to work through. AndreaOwen.com slash noise. All right. AndreaOwen.com slash noise. And of course, you should go buy the book. But if you did not enter the giveaway, give somebody else an extra copy. Make sure you <laughs> rewind, listen to the intro, and we will tell you how to sign up for it. Yeah. Thanks for listening, everybody. And you, my dear, are brilliant. I just want to tell you that. Oh, thank you. I've (laughs) I've never heard that before, but I'll try to internalize it. (laughs) We did. I had a hilarious conversation with my friend Rachel about this when I was trying to work on this. And she was like, what do you often hear? And I was like, well, people often tell me I'm one of the smartest people they've ever met, blah, blah, blah. And she was like, you know, that's not normal, right? (laughs) I was like, no, everybody hears that. And she was like, no, not everybody hears that. But like, it was such a good example. Cause if somebody had said to me, like, you're the best singer I've ever met, I'd be like, that's crazy. Right. Like right. the things that come easily to us and people constantly compliments for, we just like, don't even think about it. And then we fix it on the things that we don't. So thank you. I will accept that compliment. You're I am welcome. in fact learning that I am brilliant and everybody else is too, or at least many other people are because it is not a competitive industry. Right. Exactly. All right. Thank you so much for coming on, Andrea. Thanks for having me. Bye everyone. All right, chickens. So if you want to be entered to win a copy of Andrea's amazing new book, Make Some Noise, here's how you do it. We are giving away a free copy of the book. You can text your email address to plus one three four seven nine nine seven one seven eight four. That's plus one three four seven nine nine seven one seven eight four. And you can use the code word make noise, all one word, make noise, and you'll be entered for a chance to win the book. Or you can go to unfuckyourbrain.com forward slash make some noise. So if you're going to the URL, it's forward slash make some noise. If you are texting us, you text your email to plus one three four seven nine nine seven one seven eight four, and the code word is make noise, just one word. 
please make sure you enter by September 9th to be considered. We will be drawing the winner shortly thereafter, and we will get in touch with you if you are the winner. Go enter. The book is amazing. And of course, if you don't win the raffle, go buy a copy of the book yourself or give one to a friend or both. If you're loving what you're learning in the podcast, you have got to come check out The Clutch. The Clutch is the podcast community for all things on Fuck Your Brain. It's where you can get individual help applying the concepts to your own life. It's where you can learn new coaching tools not shared on the podcast that will blow your mind even more. And it's where you can hang out and connect over all things thought work with other podcast chickens just like you and me. It's my favorite place on earth and it will change your life. I guarantee it. Come join us at www.unfuckyourbrain.com forward slash the clutch. That's unfuckyourbrain.com forward slash the clutch. I can't wait to see you there.